Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of Inside Fiction's Stories from the End of the Universe. As before, if you don't really understand that, I would suggest going to InsideFictions.com. This episode is going to be a little bit different from the last because it only has one story. A story that Dee, or at least one of her people, left at my doorstep this afternoon. I can always tell it's one of these people because they knock twice, and when I open the door to see who it is, I pass out for 30 minutes and wake up in a puddle of my own vomit. <sighs> the package turned out to be an audio tape, which is weird because you would expect trans-dimensional beings to be able to do a little bit better. It was labeled, At the Midnight, and came with a note that says, More to come. I don't know if that means there's going to be more audio tapes, or whether I should be expecting another visitor sometime later today, but I expect we'll figure it out soon enough. After listening to the tape a couple dozen times, I decided to call it Dead Eyes at the Midnight. I also jazzed it up a little bit with music and stuff, because, you know, marketing. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. And I might break in about midway through to explain something that I think I figured out about this tape. Either way, I'll see you then. There are moments you wish you could remember those you'll never forget. There are some, however, that fall between remembering and forgetting. And it's on those moments that you just might find yourself. At the Midnight. A woman, not very young, but not very old, checked into the hotel today. Her eyes were dead. I don't mean that figuratively. I mean dead. Dead eyes. Like a corpse. Like the plants outside. I offered her a cup of coffee, but she said she didn't drink. So I poured the steaming liquid onto the carpet and threw the cup against the back wall, showing her that I respected her wishes. In response, she showed me her teeth. A skull filled with yellow rotting teeth. Too many teeth for any reasonable person to have. Still, I nodded politely, assuming this was her way of saying, Thank you very much, Catherine. Years ago, I'd been taught that in hospitality, politeness is almost as important a skill as ritual necromancy. Which is to say, it's very important. After filling out the state-mandated waivers and insurance paperwork, she gave me her driver's license, and I gave her the room keys. As our fingers touched, she gripped my hand and held it there, dead eyes burning into mine, mouth moving soundlessly, heart beating harder and harder, impossibly hard in her chest, in her fingertips. I smiled and explained that there was a delicious veal cutlet being served tonight in the Auburn room and that little Nemo was playing at 7pm in the atrium. She took back her hand, letting out a sigh that made her whole chest rattle. 
Thomas, the bellhop, asked if she needed any help with her bags. She had no bags. She had nothing but those dead eyes. She waved him off, which was impressive considering Thomas is entirely incorporeal. Afterwards, she turned and walked towards the bank of elevators. Mrs. X was in the lobby again today. She was upset about the toilets. Well, the toilet paper. She just kept moaning, drool dripping from her jowls as she stomped her feet on the floor, falling to her hands and knees. Then she started baying. 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 Can you imagine? She never even uses the stuff. We haven't had to replace a roll in her room for six months. Now she claims that thinner waste paper is bad for her delicate constitution. Her husband was no help. He was far too busy looping a length of rope around his arm and tying a much too complicated knot. Even so, at the midnight, it's our policy to see to it that our long-term guests are comfortable. So I braved the storage closet, without the proper military-grade steel-toed boots, mind you, and found a roll of double ply. Next time Thomas turns up, I'll ask him to grab a few dozen more and stack them around their room. I have this feeling. Call it desk manager's intuition that they're going to need them. Housekeeping ran out of mints again this morning. This wouldn't keep happening if they'd stop using them in their stupid game. They all stand around in their tan robes, holding afternoon scepters and sticking dozens and dozens of tiny wintergreen capsules into their maws, all while slurping down cheap diet soda and trying to recite lines from William Burroughs' Naked Lunch. I don't even know how you win, but I do know... We've gone through 17 cases of junior mints and 23 housekeepers since they started last month. And because of their irresponsibility, our new guest is now sitting in her room, mintless. Fortunately, I keep my own supply ready for just these occasions. And since our staff is too busy to do their jobs, I guess I can run a couple up to her. The woman's door was locked when I arrived, which was terribly inconvenient because I'd forgotten my keys downstairs. Luckily, Thomas was carrying a load of tortoiseshell glasses to the basement to be incinerated, as a part of management's new no-animal-themed eyewear policy. Recognising my plight, he was happy to peek in and undo the latch. While this is not strictly within the operations and policies manual, I'm sure that management will see from wherever they're secretly spying on us, that mint-related emergencies require extraordinary measures. Down the hall, I could hear the soul-rending screams of Mr. and Mrs. X enjoying their new high-quality bathroom paper. Oh, it's feedback like that that makes the job worthwhile. When I entered the room... The woman was staring at a photo and crying 
not really crying. Those dead eyes were incapable of human tears. Her face, though, was puffy and red, swollen, like she had been hit. And since I had personally checked her soul wards and cleansed the room of everything that might have hit her, I was forced to assume that this puffiness was a function of some emotion or another. While it isn't my responsibility to help our clients sort through their feelings, if a desk manager can't break into a guest's room and browbeat her into opening up, then what good is she? I sat next to her on the bed, my gaze wide and wet and unblinking. What I'm certain was a great comfort to her, at least it was to me when I was younger, and the clerics used to stand in my chamber, staring at me with saucer-shaped eyes for hours and hours on end, imploring me to sleep soundly. To sleep soundlessly. Uh, anyways, for a long time, the woman said nothing. So I said nothing. Our silence dragged on into eternity. It seemed less an absence of sound than an absence of life and meaning and truth. Just as this moment threatened to consume us both, she reached out her hand and placed a small photo in mine. It was of a girl. Not very young, but not very old. And this girl was smiling. This girl had eyes. Eyes that were alive. Beautiful eyes. It was her. Somewhere in the difference between the girl in the photo and the one sitting next to me were the tears. She looked up, swollen, puffy face filled with longing and pain. I offered her a handkerchief she couldn't use, then told her that little Nemo was playing downstairs in fifteen minutes. That little Nemo is always playing downstairs in fifteen minutes. That while some things must change, others are exactly as they've always been, as they always must be. I touched her on the shoulder, which seemed to cheer her up. At the very least, her sobbing was reduced to a low, smooth moan. In hospitality field school, this is what my favourite instructor, Master Sergeant Rosa Morales, would have called making a connection. She would have called it this before connecting her estate-issued baton with my pith helmet. <sighs> Having done my duty and delivered the mints, I left the woman to her contemplations. I met Mr. X walking down the stairs. He was carrying a large black bag that writhed and snarled and spat in his hands. I didn't know that bags could spit, but he assured me that it was perfectly normal, that he had recently purchased a set of bags that were bred for their spitting abilities, that he was merely taking this one out for a walk. I asked him how his wife was enjoying the second ply. In response, he howled for fifteen seconds, and then grumbled something about bad rope. The bag responded, thrashing and barking and grinding its teeth. I made a note to pick up a few the next time I was at the market. <laughs> As we parted ways, me heading towards the lobby and him towards the basement incinerator, he thanked me for the extra paper and asked me to send housekeeping up as soon as they returned from whatever plane of existence they currently found themselves in. 
I was happy that my desk manager's intuition had been right about the extra roles. I was less happy that housekeeping had run off again. <sighs> one of these days, I'm going to set each and every one of their rooms on fire. That should teach them something about responsibility. In the special way that only third-degree burns can. When I saw the woman next, she looked reborn. Her eyes were still dead, but behind them, somewhere deep, was a spark. She seemed lighter, and not just because she weighed next to nothing, her stylish upmarket clothing hanging from a skeletal frame like rags. No, something had changed. Then she told me. Last night she had gone to a screening of Little Nemo and had absolutely loved it. I wasn't surprised. There is nothing quite like Winsor McKay's classic tale of a boy exploring the darkest depths of his consciousness and discovering the chaotic truths hidden within dreams to help you overcome small personal crises. Knowing these things is just part of what it means to be a good desk manager. I handed back her driver's license and she handed me the envelope with her payment. Thomas tipped his bowler hat to her, but for whatever reason she didn't seem to notice. She smiled a thin-lipped smile, turned, and walked out of the midnight. As she did, I opened the envelope and took out two crisp sheets of paper. At this point, side A of the tape ends, but side B doesn't seem to be cat at all. It took a couple times listening through for me to figure out what was going on. At the end, she mentions receiving an envelope containing a payment, and describes this payment as being two sheets of paper. I think that what's written on those sheets of paper is what we're about to hear on side B which raises a whole host of other questions that I can't even begin answering right now. Anyway, take a listen and decide for yourself. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Scene, three candles... Three children, all perhaps fifteen, all curious about the worlds beyond their charcoal eyes. This is so boring, Cindy. Why can't we ever do anything fun? Cindy leads this junior coven, her symbol of office the cheap plastic ankh hanging around her neck. Stacy, the board girl, is Cindy's first lieutenant. She sits sullenly, her voice pitched to the edge of mutiny. I don't want to hear it, Stacy. This is way more fun than anyone you'd be doing right now. Her lips are the colour of fresh blood and laced with venom. You mean 
David. Rachel is quiet, mousy, a body designed to be ignored. As she draws out the name David, Cindy nearly chokes on her laughter. A rare bit of validation for the girl. Rachel. She's right, Stace. If not for us, you'd be sitting around complaining about your baby daddy by now. Her Cockney accent is serviceable for a girl who had never even heard the toll of Bow's bells, and whose experience of the culture doesn't extend beyond a vague knowledge of rhyming slang in Dick Van Dyke's portrayal of Bert the Chimney Sweep. Would not. Is this kind of sparkling wit that I've come to expect from these girls? You'd be fat with your hair in a bun, waddling around that apartment of yours, wishing you had friends like us to tell you to buy a condom. Stacy scowls. Rachel nods, and Cindy smiles—a smile that says she wouldn't mind seeing that happen. You're full of it, Sin. For once, Stacy is right. Despite David's many, many protestations, Stacy is as chaste as driven snow. It's a little bit sickening, but then again, I'm biased. Don't believe me. How about we find out? A few months ago, Cindy lost her virginity to a counselor at the summer camp her parents ship her off to every year. Since then, she has made it her life's mission to prove everyone is as corrupted as she feels. Not coincidentally, this is about the same time she started wearing black eyeliner, calling her cat Shadow, and holding these bi-monthly meetings of disaffected suburbanites who fashion themselves witches. <sighs> and how do you plan on doing that, Sin? I plan on summoning a demon from beyond the veil. To tell us where you'd be if we weren't here to hold your hands. Cindy's attempt at gravitas fails. Rachel is rolling on the floor. Stacy is seething. Do whatever you want, Sin. You're so full of crap. It's a surprise you still float. Explains why Troy won't give you the time of day. That and Troy is quite happily seeing Rachel behind Cindy's back. I have to give the girl credit; she doesn't flinch. Fine then, get the candles. She wields an authority that neither of the other girls can resist. They scramble to their feet, finding five votive candles they liberated from the mall the weekend before, placing them in a circle nearby. With the mien of a stage magician, Cindy pushes herself to her feet and arranges the candles in a mostly symmetric pattern. Picking up a piece of chalk stolen from the school and using it to draw a circle of complex-looking runes. Next, she walks to her laptop, its background overgrown with black roses, and pecks away at the keys. In five minutes, she has a small stack of papers. Tonight, we're summoning Quiral, Damon of the Seven-Handed Clock. He speaks of futures that have failed to be. And futures that still may come. Why is it that every clutch of humans who try this always manage to make up some new and more embarrassing name for us? I'd rather be called Bob or Ryan than some unpronounceable mess of accents and apostrophes. 
That is, unless you're scared. Rachel is. All she wanted was to look cool in front of the other girls, and have an excuse to wear black clothes. She hadn't expected to have to do anything. Stacy looks angry, angrier than when they were children, and she found out that Cindy had lied about her bike being stolen because she had borrowed it, and wrecked it. <sighs> Just get on with it, Sin. Cindy blows Stacy a kiss and arranges her votives. Lighting them in an unnecessarily meaningful order. Afterward, she takes a seat in the circle and motions for the girls to form a triangle, with her at its apex. A moment of silence. Then Cindy reads from the sheets of paper. A few sentences in, she sputters. We really need four people to do this right. Where is Carrie anyway? Visiting her dad. Wait. Does that mean you're giving up? Would you please shut up, Stacy? The first and only rule of demon summoning is to follow directions. As ridiculous as her little internet cookbook is, it's right about the fact that circles of protection should be made of melted wax, and not schoolhouse chalk. It might sound like a little thing, but the devil, as they say, is in the details. Powers of the sky and sea, powers of the beasts of the fields, powers of the stars and the moon. Hear me, and call forth Quirral, Lord of Fate. Showtime. I have to give them credit; they don't all pass out at once. Rachel does, but after she disappears into the circle, Stacy and Cindy manage to stay surprisingly poised. What happens next? Well, situations like this tend to follow a classic pattern. First comes fear. Who, who, who the hell are you? Are you Quirrell? Sure. <laughs> Why not? By the way. Protection circles are made of wax, not chalk. It's a rookie mistake. <laughs> Next comes negotiation. What do you want? Our bodies, our souls. Where did you send Rachel? Please, if you promise not to hurt us, we'll do anything you want. Then, it happens. I can't help myself. I start laughing. Finally, after all the tears dry, we come to acceptance. Rachel isn't coming back, is she? Not likely. You aren't going to let us go, are you? Probably not. Right. Could could I ask you one thing then, before we go? Pfft, why the hell not? Wait, is this that stupid question about Stacy? No, I mean, yes, yes. Sorry, is that okay? <sighs> She would have been fine. Lived a long, happy life. Eventually, spawned a little brood of her own. They went pale 
paler than their caked-on makeup should have allowed. <laughs> Are you lying? Does it even matter? Now, if we're all done here, I have places to be. I'm so sorry, Stace. It's okay, Sin. Stacy dips her head a fraction, gripping her best friend's hand as they sink into the darkening circle. Three for the price of one. This is turning out to be a good night. Hey everyone, this is Steve, the other one, and I just wanted to thank you all for listening to another episode of Inside Fictions. I'm breaking in here out of character because I wanted to give a huge, huge shout out to Jessica Kinghorn, who is the voice of Catherine, and will be for the entire run of this series. She and I have been working on this thing forever, and it's awesome that it's come together as well as it has right now. If you're noticing any kind of weird stuff with the audio quality, I promise you it's being worked on and it will be fixed as soon as humanly possible. So, as always, if you like what you've heard, go to InsideFictions.com. If you really like At The Midnight in particular, you should check out AtTheMidnight.com, where we're going to be posting all kinds of cool stuff about the podcast and the series, etc., 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 Otherwise, just keep tuning in. There's a lot more to come, a few more surprises, and I'm sure maybe even a couple of answers at some point. Thanks, guys. Couldn't do it without you.